Hi, I'm Jude. And this is Past Imperfect Podcast. The alchemy of transforming trauma. <laughs> How are you today, Jude? I'm very well. Um, let me just take a breath and find out if that's true. I'm always excited when we come to do this and I'm extra excited because we come face to face and we sit in the room and do this. Yeah. Breathing all over each other. <laughs> um, and um, in my actual life, I'm in a place of excitement and also um, I, groundlessness because I am staying with a lovely friend and it's working well. I left where I lived. I'm now staying with somebody. I'm about to take a leap into something properly unknown. And I'm feeling, um, I'm really noticing coping strategies which could be named traumatic <laughs> or driven by birth traumas. And I'm noticing that I'm kind of saying, oh, it's fine, you know, I've moved so many times, it's absolutely fine. And actually, it's really ungrounding to, it's, it's exactly what I want, but it's ungrounding to not have a home that's my own. Yeah. And that's perfect for the moment, but I have to, what I'm noticing just from conversation with you is that by noticing that that's true, it makes it easier. Yeah. So I'm happy where I am and I know that I'm about to leap to the next thing. But by, by instead of saying, oh, it's fine, I move all the time, I'm saying to myself, it's ungrounding and that's okay. Yeah. And so knowing it makes it easier. So that's where I'm at. Yeah. Now you ask. Yeah. How are you, Sammy? Where are you at? Well... I'm okay. I mean, it's been we've been in this COVID situation for a long time now, and while I'm enjoying really enjoying certain aspects of that, the the freedom and the slowing down, and you know, there's also that thing of like, you know, well, when am I going to get back to work, and is that ever going to happen, and what's the impact of all this stuff on the industry that I work in, and and so I'm not overly concerned about it at the moment, but I am starting to notice me getting a little twitchy about it. Mm. But thank God for this podcast, because this is what's kept me creatively. I mean, this is, as we know, we've we wanted to do this for a long, long time. Yeah. And so I'm really excited about this. And it's the thing that's really keeping me going. And I'm also falling in love at the moment. So that's got its excitement and its challenges because, you know, I'm terrified of repeat experiences. But I'm just trying to keep grounded and show up as honestly as I can. And sometimes I don't always manage that. And that's me noticing my patterns. And when I think I've made progress, I'm like, oh, yes, I'm much more whatever now. And then it turns out that actually I'm not. <laughs> but what I am doing is taking it slow and really trying to just be aware of myself as much yeah. as I can be. But it's so interesting how those unconscious, that unco- all those old patterns, they just, they just, they're just there. I mean, that ties in with what we're going to talk about today, doesn't Absolutely it? Absolutely, it does. And yeah, you come into a relationship and, and it, Provides a perfect mirror for what's still needing attention. Yeah. That's mm. one way of putting it. Yeah. Another way of putting it is it brings all your shit up again. Yeah, it brings all your shit up. And I'm not, you know, I'm just noticing a lot of, you know, fears coming up, but which yeah. I think it's natural when we start to invest our energy and our love in somebody because, you know, you just, but it's that thing of going, well, you know what? I trust now that everything that is coming to me is, is what I need. And so whether that's, however that comes, it's, it's all welcome. Mm. <sighs> I just want to describe Sammy's face when she made that noise. <laughs> it's kind of fear and resignation at the same time. <laughs> oh, oh my god! But yeah, it's just, yeah, it's yeah, face for radio <laughs> in that moment. 
much. That sounded awful. It's not what I mean. <laughs> I know what you mean, don't um, worry. It's good to describe what's happening sometimes. So yeah, today what we're going to be talking about is trauma and the body. Mm. Which covers all sorts of things from embodiment to... Now, we get into a lot of jargon, so we're going to try and explain everything that we talk about. You know, attachment, which is how you bond with your primary caregivers when you're an infant and an early, a young child, and how that affects your ability to manage your own life in the future. And we're going to talk about embodiment and what that is and what it means. Um, we're going to be talking a lot about the content of a book called The Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. Absolutely amazing book if you want to understand through stories and examples how the body holds on to trauma and what you can do about releasing it. Incredible book, really long, would recommend it as an audiobook. <laughs> I still haven't read this book and I've heard so much about it, it's on my list with the rest of the pile of books I've got downstairs that are my general day-to-day reading. I don't read novels, I only read these sorts of books, so I, I need to get on this one. Yeah, me too. And it's um, it's a proper 15-course meal, that one. Right. So it's it's really interesting, and you can you can dip in. And there's quite a lot of crossover where it talks about things more than once, which is really good for understanding. Yeah. But it also means you can dip in and read a chapter, and, and that's a course, and you can enjoy it for itself. And you uh, don't okay. necessarily have to read it all in the same order. That's also useful. So, we're talking about trauma and the body. Yeah. I'm going to show it over to you. What would you like to know? Or what would you, what are you curious about? Because we, yeah. Well, I guess, first of all, like, what has the body got to do with trauma? You know, like. Well, it's funny you should ask. (laughs) (laughs) What has the body got to do with trauma? I mean, what hasn't the body got to do with trauma? So, one of the premises of this book and of many theories, which I'm not going to name them all, um, is that trauma has an effect on your physiology. Trauma creates changes in your brain, your brain chemistry, your physiology. This is a relatively recent discovery. I say relatively recent, 70s, 80s, 90s, early thousands. This is where you can see when something comes into the common parlance, Embodiment is now a term that people talk about. It means it's been going for 40 years or something and it's finally the studies are getting so that people can talk about them. Yeah. So basically, um, trauma affects the body. You can't really talk about that until we understand what we're talking about when we talk about trauma. Yeah. So what is trauma? <sighs> so we're back to this question. So in the context of what we're talking about with embodiment, so for example... You could be driving along and you and I are having a conversation and you're at the wheel and all of a sudden something in your peripheral vision picks up a threat and you swerve and a massive lorry drives centimetres from the front of your car and crashes into the wall in front of you and you screech to a halt and everybody's fine. And you breathe and your heart rate goes up and you, everybody's nervous but nothing that you're all right or maybe they even hit you but the doors aren't locked and you can get out and you run away and you're like fuck that was a lucky escape and it might be traumatizing because it came out of the blue but if you're able to escape and you're able to move your body and especially if you're in connection with somebody else and you're able to say fucking hell that was that was close and maybe you witnessed that happen and maybe everybody's okay okay Mm -hmm. theoretically 
you're unlikely to keep that as a trauma in your body because you've been able to move, because you've been able to talk about it, connect with somebody else, because you've been able to establish safety. Maybe the lorry driver gets out and that person's okay. Maybe somebody was hurt, but you know the, the ambulances are there, the police are there, everything is some kind of resolution. If, then you probably get on with your life. Yeah. If you have massive trauma in your history, which we'll talk about later, you're very much less likely to be able to get on with your life after that because it will reactivate traumas that you already have in your body. So it will reconfirm to your body that the world is a dangerous place. Right. Okay. If all of that happened and your responses kicked in slightly later or the world conspired to mean that you were trapped in your car, maybe uninjured, but you're trapped. So all of your responses that say, I'm in a dangerous situation, I need to get out, but you're trapped. You'd say your arms are trapped and you can't move or your door's locked, you can't move. Then your body has to kick into the next stage. It can't run, which is flight. It can't fight anything off. So your your system, this is your sympathetic nervous system, is kicked into action for fight or flight. It says this is when your adrenaline kicks in and you either fight or you run away. But if that happens and it can't go anywhere, this is where you tip into collapse. Your body says all of the things that I can do to save myself aren't working, so I have to do something else. In the animal world, you'll see an antelope run, 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 run. When it gets caught, sometimes they do, they do collapse and they fall. And they act dead. And sometimes the, the predator will leave it alone because it's not exciting anymore. And you'll think that the antelope is dead. And then the predator t- goes off and the antelope leaps up and runs away because it's been in collapse. But then its systems have kicked back in and it runs away. Wow. Um, or you'll see the rabbit in headlights. So the danger comes and the rabbit just goes... And that's... Was that freeze? That's freeze. Okay. Um... When the body learns as an infant or through a trauma in later life that what it can do to save itself doesn't work, freeze and collapse are more likely. So I might go into a situation that's dangerous for me and instead of trying to get myself out, I would collapse. So there's a study done, this is from um, Bessel van der Kolk again from this book. Yeah. Study done on dogs. They gave dogs in cages electrical shocks. They couldn't escape. They were given shocks and not allowed to escape. And given shocks and not allowed to escape. And given shocks and not allowed to escape. And then they opened the cage door and went to the dogs and got ready. And all of of the ritual of showing the things and, you know, shocking the dogs. They didn't even try to escape. Because they had learned that the shock is coming. I can't do anything about it. So they didn't even try. And the gate was open. The dog could escape. The dog didn't even try to escape. Wow. The only way they could get the dog to escape was to show the dog's body what it's like to escape. So they would pull these dogs out and give them the physical experience of climbing out of the cage and running. Climbing out of the cage repeatedly until the dog learned that when they come with the electric shock, they can climb out of the cage and run. Wow. So how this applies to human trauma, if you're a child and your primary caregivers are not taking care, or especially if your primary caregivers are causing you harm. For example, the example of a a sexually abused child who lies in her bed at night and her parent comes in and 
and you know her, her father comes in and rapes her which is much more common than we'd like to think about she learns that she can't escape how can she five or six what are you going to do run away <laughs> you can't look after yourself this is your source of survival so she learns to not follow the physical impulses to run away but to lie there and do something else and that might be dissociating so taking herself out of her body so that she doesn't have to be present in her physical sensation while that's happening and again all of this isn't like oh what shall i do now shall i make a conscious choice to jump yeah, out? of course all of this like... is an automatic animal response but if that happens especially if it happens repeatedly, she learns that my body's responses are meaningless. And so I don't get my information from there. So she learns to dis- to disappear from her body. And so then when she goes out into her life and her body tells her all sorts of things, if she perceives it at all, she knows to ignore it because she's been trained like the dogs by her experience. She's been trained that Oh yeah, there might be some rumination of sensation in this body telling me that something's not... There might be an inkling that something's not okay. But the training subconsciously is, and we ignore that because otherwise we don't survive. Wow. So this is a kind of summary of all sorts of different theories, and I'm not naming scientists left, right and centre, I advise reading the book. But that's so interesting because, um, you know, I suppose... For me, what's interesting is, like, I totally have that experience as an adult. Like, I, I don't... I find mm. it very difficult to connect in with, like, warning signs and recognising when I'm not in a safe situation. Like, yeah. I literally don't recognise it. But I can't think of anything in my childhood that's happened that would have created that. I mean, I can I can certainly see that my parents were pleasers and so I wasn't often... It wasn't really okay to express um, negative emotions about certain people and things like that. So I know it's been switched off in that way, but it's um, it's really interesting to understand where does trauma come from. I mean, we've talked mm. a little bit about you know the fact that there's an experience as a child that you might have, but are there any other places where trauma? Can I just go back to what yeah. you just said? So you've said it was not okay to express negative emotions, and I know in our conversations you've said, for example, if you didn't like somebody the primary need was to be polite and treat that person as though you did like them, not to say, mummy, daddy, I don't like that person or I want to move away from that person. Yeah. So you're literally being trained for the sake of politeness, not for any Machiavellian purpose, to say, this feeling in my body is less important than what you need, my mother or father, in order to retain politeness. So your needs and politeness are more important than what my body is telling me good learning chuck that up repeated repeated it becomes true yeah mm, interesting mm. but it's in, but but i mean even deeper than that is that feeling of like i literally can go into fear responses about speaking truth to people yeah. it, it sort of sets off and I'm, and i think this like must be ancestral or epigenetic in some way because it's so extreme, the fear. It's like, I think, isn't it like just a basic survival program as well in terms yeah. of, you know, if I'm not accepted by the tribe or by the world, then I'm in danger. Yeah. So um, another one of the... This, is, this wasn't in the book. This was a, a video that I could post a link to. There is a video of a mother... Yeah. ...with her baby. 
and they're cooing at each other and they're having a lovely interaction and the baby's touching her face and, you know, scratching in her nostrils like babies love to with their little sharp fingernails. <laughs> and they're gazing into each other's eyes and she's rocking her baby gently. Well, the baby's in a high chair, but she's interacting and there's movement and there's beautiful to watch. Makes my womb get bigger. <laughs> and then, this is the test, she was requested to turn slightly away from the baby and not respond to any of the baby's cues for two minutes literally two minutes and the baby goes from um contented cooing to looking at the mother and the mother just goes kind of blank doesn't completely turn away just goes a bit blank doesn't respond and the baby goes to kind of then then the baby tries all sorts of things so uh, doing what they just were doing so doing the noises they just were doing nothing and then you can see the baby's little brain and little physiognomy just working it. And the baby then tries being cute to get attention and that doesn't work. And then the baby tries screaming to get attention. You can see the baby getting more and more distressed and nothing happens. And you can see the confusion and you can see the body agitation of the, this little child. And then finally the two minutes is up and the, baby, the mother comes back and reconnects with the baby. Wow, and the baby—you can see the relief in the child's body, and and it, you know, and and it, it oh, it's got connection, and it's got touch again, and it's got all these soothing things, and then this isn't in the video, but what you would hope and imagine is that the baby is then rocked and held close and re-soothed, and it's okay. The, the world is a safe place. Here I am, and rhythmic rocking movement like we do with babies is really soothing. Ah, oh, isn't that lovely? <laughs> yeah. So when you're a child in a situation where your needs aren't met. So this is two minutes and there's a visible, intense distress on the face of the baby and in the whole body of the baby. If this is happening all the time to you, you know, if this is, if all of your needs aren't met, so what you've described to me, your need to be seen and to be validated in your internal visceral sense that somebody's not safe or that you don't want to do something doesn't mean you get to do everything you want but to be seen in that and to be acknowledged in that is a need and this is called attunement so that is the mother is the primary caregiver usually the mother at that age um in tune with what the baby needs if the mother and primary caregivers are in tune with what the baby needs the baby soils it's you know poos and is uncomfortable and screams, then that will be sorted out. If it's hungry, that will be sorted out. If it's tired, it will be rocked and soothed and laid down. The the attention of the child of the parent or the caregiver is on the child, and there's an emotional resonance between them. So yeah. there's this flow. The child learns that the world is a safe place, and then it is much more courageous in taking risks because the world's a safe place. So it gets to Come, it's like the touch tree thing. It's the mother or the parent is the touch tree. It knows that the parent's there paying it attention. It runs off. It takes risks. It has adventures and comes back and says, I did that. And then it does it again. If the baby's needs are routinely ignored, then what it learns is that the, the world is a, a confusing and volatile place where I have no agency. I can't affect anything. I can't make changes with what I do. I have to depend on something outside. I only get attention from my caregiver when they choose, not when I do anything. So the lesson that goes in is what I do doesn't count. Wow. Yeah. You're right. 
Yeah. I, I just, uh, I'm just thinking about... Ma- this, I just watched a video yesterday about... Um, when you're in a narcissistic relationship and you get discarded, yeah. you're discarded like you don't matter. Yeah. And the the lesson within that is, is like the reason that that experience has come to you is because inside you feel like you don't matter. Yeah. And that's a reflection of that. And therefore that's, you know, you've been at some level, you've taken in the belief that you don't matter. Yeah. And so you are co-creating that experience yeah. repeatedly and it's heartbreaking. But what's really, really important in this bit of theory is... It's not... So what it teaches a child is to give up in the face of challenge. Now, this is the story of my life, man. This is the story of my life. I think I can do something, I have these great ideas, I start something, I get one minor disappointment, and I'm like, it must have been the wrong thing. It must have been wrong. I can't do this, I'm bad, I can't... Blah, blah, blah. Oh, you don't need to know all that. But this is a pattern, and I've always hated myself for that. But if you step back from it, and look at it that way, this isn't a moral thing. It's not because you're lazy. It's not because you're... Even because you're damaged, it's because your body has learnt, your physiology has changed, and your body has learnt that that you have to give up in the face of challenge because there's no point fighting, because it doesn't get you survival. It's that fundamental. Wow. Wow. And I guess, I mean, I'm just thinking about self-sabotage. Yeah, because I know I can totally sabotage myself when I get really amazing things happening and I go, on some level I don't deserve this and at some point I'm going to be found out so I might as well just fuck it on myself. <laughs> That's interesting. So that triggers, you know, self-help queen once again. Um, the Big Leap by Gail Gay Hendricks. Yes. The Upper Limit Problem. The Upper Limit says, I can only take this much goodness before I have to fuck it up and come back to the my upper limit. Yeah. Which is if you've if you've had a lot of trauma in your background, and trauma can be caused by minor things, not yeah, you, know, you don't have to be kicked from one side of the room to the other every day to be traumatized. Having your needs routinely ignored causes trauma and will cause quite a low level of upper limit of what you can take as far as good things. Wow. And then you learn to get yourself back to that safety level. God, it's fascinating. I need to read. That's another book I need to read. I think I've got it downstairs. It's amazing. It's really good. Yeah. Mm. Uh, Holly talks about that in her recovery programme, the um, alcohol recovery programme. She talks about that book and The Body Keeps the Score. Mel talks about that book as well. So it's like, yeah. Good books. Yeah. Amazing. So we've talked a little bit about early developmental trauma and then we we was... I was asking about epigenetics and ancestral and past life stuff. Mm. I don't know. What's your views on, on all that stuff? Well, I don't know. There is, I mean, it's funny because I go straight to the science when actually it's not just in the realms of science that things are proven. Mm. (laughs) So science would say that um, trauma is passed on epigenetically, it's passed on through generations. It would also say, so this is an argument... um, Any group of people... Yeah. who are routinely discarded and treated like second-class citizens mm-hmm. um, will learn that this is true and that they, in order to survive, they need to behave like this is true. So, for example, if you're a Native American living on a reservation, um, you need to know how to deal with police because your life might be in danger in a way that it wouldn't be for me with my white skin and... British accent, yeah. if I was in America. So 
you learn that. And so when you have your children, you have to teach them that because it's part of their survival. Yeah. It's not like you take, no, today we're going to have the lesson about how to deal with police, but everything that you do will show this. If you are economically disadvantaged, that that will go into your system as well. You won't expect your upper limit will come down and down and down. You won't expect good things. You will know that you have to look out for yourself. Your system will always be on high alert, which makes your autoimmune system more likely to malfunction, which makes mm. you more susceptible to disease. It's fucking exhausting for the body to constantly be on high alert for dangers that might happen but may not be happening at the time. Yeah. And then there's the, the, the paradox of when your system is constantly on high alert, high alert, you've kind of numbed some of your senses to what's really dangerous. So you don't have discernment about what's dangerous to you. So then you do put yourself into situations that might be dangerous because, I mean, it's like you've burnt those senses to some extent. Wow. And it's really interesting because if you think about like... Um, I know that fear and it's the adrenaline, the cortisol in the system that kind of knocks your immune system out. So like all this stuff about COVID at the moment, like the fear is the virus as far as I'm concerned, mm. because it's 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 making your immune system less effective anyway. So, I mean, I refuse to go into fear about something like that, but I do have fears about other stuff because intellectually I'm like, I can see what's happening there. So yeah. I refuse to engage with it. But in other ways, in other aspects of my life, I still have those massive fear responses and um, it's trauma-based, but it's, yeah, it's, it's just so fascinating where this stuff comes from. Mm. Like, I really feel like I've picked up so much trauma from my grandma and her experiences as a, as a, as a young woman. I feel like I've, t- I mean, whenever I sort of go into sort of meditation about this stuff, I often get really strong connection with my grandma's energy. She's not with us anymore, bless her. But um, it's, it's just so interesting. It really is. It's fascinating. And... In some ways, wherever it comes from, the fact that it's there, we've talked about this in previous episodes, the fact that it's there is not a problem, but a flag. It's not an issue, it's a, it's um, it's like an arrow going, here's where to work, right here yeah. in the body. And we're back. Yes, so we're back in the body. So right here in the body. And I'm pointing as I point to my core, right in the middle of my body, solar plexus area, which is just mm. below the sternum. A little soft bit just below the sternum. Which is the big bone. I don't have no idea what people know what the bones are called because I've had to train <laughs> in them. So the sternum is the bone the just underneath the heart, the, the, where, the, where the ribs join in the middle of your chest. And that's, that's also really interesting because when I do my quantum freedom healing stuff, yeah. I, I it's like, where do you feel it in the body? Yeah. And that's the most place where I feel it. You know, when we say like, we feel sick to our stomach, yeah. it's all happening around there. Not always. Sometimes it's in my throat. Sometimes it's in my heart or in my, my back. But mainly it's in the stomach, isn't it? Or just above in, the stomach. In the belly. So where the chakra system is in yogic thinking or in Hindu thinking, so from the base of the spine up to the crown of the head, whether you believe on, in chakras or not doesn't make any difference. Where that's your visceral area, that's the, that's where um, your whole trunk up until your throat is is your core, and then you've got your third eye and your crown in the chakra system as well. You've got your brain, which obviously tells you it's the most important organ in your body most of the time. It isn't, but it tells you that it is. <laughs> 
So all of your visceral responses will happen here, and these are the responses. So if your visceral response happens, but you don't connect that with doing something to keep yourself safe, yeah, you put yourself in more danger. Oh, it's so interesting. It's really interesting. Um, I'm just thinking back to my... It's just because you're talking about like the different places in the body and the chakras. When I had my narcissistic excuse experience, at the end of it, I felt damaged in my base chakra, in my heart chakra, and in my third eye. Right. That was where I really, I was, you know, I feel like I was sort of really shown that quite obviously that that's where the trauma was, and that I had to address these different areas of my body to literally viscerally get that out of my system. It's like having to be exercised almost, exorcised yeah. from that. But but really, it was just showing me where I wasn't in alignment. That's what I understand about it now. It was showing me that in my sexual area, in my heart and in my mind, I wasn't aligned and I wasn't, um, yeah, I don't know what the word is, but that there was issues there that I needed to address. Mm. And that's what that experience showed me, but in quite a tangible way. Mm. So how did you exorcise? Oh, I tried all sorts of things. I went to see shamanic practitioners, um, a number of different shamanic practitioners in this country, um, did sort of shamanic work on it. I also did like detox, like cleansed myself with juices and um, did a lot of yoga and also did the Melanie Tonya Evans program where you're working specifically with trauma. In your body? In your body, yeah. Mm. So that's my only real, that's my only real experience of trauma related work and I didn't even really know about any of this stuff before I had mm. that experience. I had no idea that I was that I was carrying these levels of trauma in me, and you know, literally, I would be shaking and all kinds of stuff happening. I'm like, "What the hell is going on here?" Like, it's really overwhelming when you first start to acknowledge. I mean, that's the thing is, like, I'd been having I'd obviously been having trauma responses my whole life, but I'd never recognised them as that. And it was the narcissistic abuse experience which really raised that up to such a level that I had no choice but to address it. Yeah. And you make it that this is a really important point. So if you have unexplained and unexplainable chronic pain or a susceptibility to autoimmune disease, for example, if I were to say maybe it's trauma, I'm not saying, oh, maybe something terrible has to you in your past and you need to find out the stories and feel it all. And What I'm saying is, Maybe there's another way to address it rather than medically treat the symptoms. Oh, I've got gastric problems. Let's get some drugs for gastric problems or let's do a, some surgery for gastric problems. Or I've got chronic back pain. I speak for myself. I have chronic back Me pain. Me too. <sighs> Maybe it's trauma held in the body. This is what happens when you refuse or are unable to feel an emotion or when the fear of feeling an emotion is so high and again I'm really calm a lot of the time I'm really like I'm okay what is the worst thing that can happen but secretly there's a level of fear of releasing some of this that's huge it's huge so what do I do instead of saying I really noticed it last night I was doing um, some trauma release I was doing some physical movement trauma release and I found myself picking at my skin. And I noticed that while I was doing my trauma release and I picked at my skin, the movements that had been happening when I was 
focusing on the sensations in my body stopped happening. So while I was picking, I was feeling some pain and I was feeling some relief of, you know, picking. Yeah. I didn't feel the movement and the trauma release. When I stopped, it came back immediately and started moving. Wow. Which was really interesting to me because if you don't deal with pain in your body and let it come out, you asked me earlier about how do you get rid of it. Yeah, well, that was what I was going to ask you in a minute. It's like, we've got all this stuff going on. How do we address it and how do we get get rid of it, if that's the right word? Or how do we... Quote finger, warning. <laughs> <laughs> how do we get rid of it or how do we move it? So, again, I haven't got all the answers and I still hold quite a lot of it. What I'm understanding is that the way to get rid of it is to slow the fuck down and feel it. Yeah. Ideally in a held way because social interaction is a healing is a healing force for trauma. You need to be held, you don't need to do this work alone, not completely alone, not Oh, I'm just about to go and retreat and do my work alone. I'm like actually I, I actually got the most when I did my work on my own. But Doing it on your own, you weren't. Into, well, I, I was, wasn't entirely on your own. I was following a course. You followed a course, and, I was a connected course into... and you had people here sometimes. Yeah, my you children completely solo. No, I had children. My children, yeah, half the time. Yeah, and you had connection through a community with the course. Oh yeah, but I didn't engage with it. And you had a teacher on the course, although not yeah, alive. although not a, not a personal. I was just following the program. Yeah, so it's interesting, isn't it? So I think it, I think sometimes the fact that you are completely isolated means you have to do the work. Yeah. So for distractor distractimators like you and me, <laughs> I've just made up a new word. I'm not entirely sure about it, but I'm going to call myself a distractimator again, I like so that. that it sounds like I meant it. Um, for people who are prone to distractions, my one of my favourite distractions is. Facebook and telly. The other one is helping other people who probably could get by quite well without my help. Mine is cleaning and organising my house. One of them, anyway. Or creating jobs for myself that don't need to be done. Yeah. Just to give me something to do. I'm like, proper workaholic. Well, there you go. So, slowing down for somebody who's a workaholic or with somebody who distracts a lot is really hard. The other thing is the terminology, how do I get rid of this? What if you didn't weren't trying to get rid of it? What if you were just trying to meet it? There's a there's a Hafiz poem about the guests, or is it a roomy poem? Oh, it's a roomy poem. It's a roomy poem. Welcome, welcome them all. Welcome all the guests. So these people, these sensations that you aren't feeling, or this pain, these are all guests in your house, and your job is to sit with them and have a cup of tea, not to get them out of the fucking door. So if you can <gasps> see your pain and your frightening emotions as people to sit with and take tea, or to Thich Nhat Hanh, I've gone on about him before, but Thich Nhat Hanh says, your anger is a newborn infant screaming for help. Shouting at your newborn infant isn't going gonna, isn't gonna to solve the problem. What is going to solve is holding it and nurturing it. So can you treat your anger like you would treat a newborn baby? That's how you get rid of, quote fingers, trauma is to... Hold it. And if your body can't hold it and if your fear is too strong, be held by somebody who's well-trained and ethically sound and learn to follow your instincts about what that means because there's an awful lot of wonderful trauma therapists out there and there are a few who might be really good trauma therapists but you need to make sure that they're... You need to learn to follow your instincts about who you work with. Oh, yeah, well, I know that one firsthand. Um, 
again, it's that thing of like always trusting people in authority and by authority, I mean, you know, anyone yeah. who's like in a position of, 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 of leading something or of, yeah, um, uh, you know, being an, an expert on something. My instinct initially is just to trust everybody and think everyone's doing these things for, for the greater good, but sometimes they're not, they've got an agenda. Yeah. And so I'm not very good at tuning into that stuff, but I'm getting, I'm getting better. Mm. Yeah. So I worked with an amazing somatic experiencing practitioner in Bath called Elise Parsons. She's amazing. She's really good. And one of the things I noticed in what she did is that she would name things. She would name patterns and she would name um, tendencies mm. very quietly and very lo- lovingly and with questions. But I felt I could trust her because I felt like if I deferred to her to make decisions about me, she would name it instead of colluding with me and making those decisions for me. Yeah. And uh, for me, that is that creates trust. So sometimes the, the function of another person helping you with this stuff is not to know better than you, never to know better than you about yourself. Yeah. But to reflect back what they may see from their informed place, what they're seeing and see how that lands with you, but not to make your decisions for you no. or do your practice for you. Nobody can do that. No. But having learning to trust somebody when you have an attachment level. So we're back. Sorry, I'm, I'm all over the place now. No, no, it's great. When a baby has an aggressive parent, they learn to kind of meet that energy. I, you know, actually, I'm not I'm not sure that I've got this right. There are there are officially three different attachment styles yeah. and some some ter- some books. There are more, but what I know of three so there's avoidant, which is where the kid begins to act as if nothing bothers them. Yeah. But if you test them physiologically, their heart rate is often high and they've often got a lot of stress hormones happening in their body. Yeah. But you wouldn't be able to tell because the kid would be like, yeah, no, I've got it, it's fine. And then there's um, anxious or ambivalent, which is the same thing, where the kid learns to be clingy and yeah. that they need attention. So they'll do anything to get attention because that's what makes them feel safe. So again, they're looking outside for their nourishment. But when the source of danger is the primary caregiver themselves, not just the source of ignoring, but the source of danger and hurt that they need protection from is coming from the same person. Mm. So this is where violence, sexual abuse comes in from caregivers. Then the child can't fully decide between the two and that become, then they become disorganized. And that's where they just can't trust themselves and they lose touch with the sense of themselves because they literally lost touch with the sense of their body so they've lost touch with the sense of themselves so their brain becomes organized in such a way that trust can't exist anymore well that actually sounds like the basis of a narcissist narcissistic personality disorder go on well i mean it's that thing of you 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 create you've got a disordered a disordered way of viewing the world because you don't quite know where you stand so you learn to have to manipulate the outside to get your needs met well which is essentially what narcissism is and what codependency yeah, is yeah it is it's two sides of the same coin mm. and uh, it's all about getting that stuff from the outside instead of having a whole sense of self and a connected sense of self so to go back to your question what do you what do you do to get this out of your body we've said you feel it yeah but if I were to sit completely still and feel it, I'd probably be more in my head than in my body. And so there have been quite a lot of studies that say that rhythmic movement is huge. I mean, it's soothing like you would with a baby, but rhythmic movement helps the body re-engage and helps 
the body become active again in sensing. So one study showed that kids waiting to go in to therapy, maybe non-verbal, maybe making no eye contact, and this one guy would walk in with a beach ball and he'd say hi, and if you got no eye contact and no engagement from the kid, he'd just let that go and that's fine. And then the next time he came through, he'd drop the ball and some of the kids would pick it up or at least notice it. And then time and time again, it would get to the fact that they may be kicking or throwing the ball and passing the ball. And over time doing that, the children would start to have eye contact, like you do when you're playing a game. Yeah. Because they're not focusing on their trauma, they're not looking at it, they're doing this rhythmic movement. There's also studies that say that drumming, playing jazz, singing in choral groups, because you're breathing and moving together, improv, playing, theatre. Well, I mean, I absolutely love going raving. (laughs) <laughs> and I love to dance. I mean, I'm always dancing. Mm. People could probably get annoyed with me jigging about all the time. But I, I'm starting to understand, like, that's me getting in touch with my body. Yeah. And that's why I love it so much, because it's when I feel completely free. It's when yeah. I'm like, oh, I just feel so expansive. Yeah. And I dance like a lunatic on the dance floor. I yeah. really go for it, and I don't care. Like, and it's that, it goes back to that sort of tribal drumming, like, yeah. stomping and just getting... I feel so amazing after I've been raving because I'm just, I've released a load of shit. You've released a load of shit and you've been in the company of other people, whether you need to interact with them directly or not. You've been in a rhythmic place with lots of people and that in itself has a soothing effect on the body. God, it has it, a connection. Yeah. And that's why people love that. I mean, I'm in quite a sort of underground sort of raving sort of culture and, you know, the, the connections that you get with people there, I mean, obviously some of it's a little superficial because... Some people are high, but on the whole, it's like, you know, it doesn't really matter. It's like that thing of connection and and coming together. And yeah, that sort of tribal drumming sound of just repetitive beats and losing yourself in that experience. I want to say losing yourself. You're actually not losing yourself. You're actually reconnecting with yourself. But that feels different to how I, I am some of the other times. Yeah. And there's also something about, for me, we may have talked about this before, laughter yoga for me is... The, my idea of hell <laughs> because the point of laughter yoga is to go somewhere and laugh and that is just I mean it's it makes me want to be sick in my mouth I hate it I've tried it a couple of times I hate it <laughs> laughter should be a byproduct of what you're doing not the aim in itself even when you go to comedy you know you don't go in and, and get tested on the door to see how well you laugh do you no. You go in and you hear stories or you hear somebody do their thing and you laugh or you might not laugh, but it's, it's not, not a prerequisite. It's not a prerequisite and it's not the direct point. And sometimes when we're talking about dealing with trauma, sometimes going directly to let's talk about your trauma, let's move through your body with your trauma, sometimes it's too direct or it's too intense. In the next episode, we're going to talk about um, some terminology about how we work with the body and trauma. trauma. One of them is titration and pendulation which are how you deliver trauma therapy in small doses so that you can manage it and talk about that in yeah, the next episode yeah sounds interesting i've never come across that before mm, i found it fascinating i had to tell myself not to train as a trauma therapist before i'd finished my own fucking work <laughs> right there we go um you never quite finish it's always an ongoing thing but another way of dealing things sometimes if if i were to some let's just say um a trauma victim from war so uh, somebody with ptsd from Mm -hmm. from a war situation maybe we can't just go in we can't fix that shit we can't experience what they've experienced maybe feeling angry is just too powerful an emotion for that person to sit with yeah should they sit with it give them a script 
and to get them to be angry as somebody else. The body doesn't know the difference. Your brain doesn't know the difference. You can get that anger out of your system. Oh, God, this is brilliant. So this is another reason. There's a lot of therapeutic um, theatre and improv. So you, and, then you, and then you find what's the most difficult emotion and then you allow that person to do it indirectly because what is the point? Well, we, Joe Dispenser always says like the brain doesn't know the difference between a belief and an actual thing happening. So no. you know, every time you're reliving an experience, you're recreating the you're recreating the chemical reaction in your body anyway. So whether it's actually happened or whether you're just imagining it happening, it's having the same impact on your body. And what's really interesting then is that that thing of like you know, there's um at one point I was in Billy Elliot and I used to understudy the dance teacher, the Julie Walters character. Oh, I love and that. there's That's a bit true. where she loses her shit at this family mm. because they're just being so ridiculous about and so macho about him doing anything. And that was the bit that I used to look forward to doing the most. Now I'm not generally an angry person. I'm super amenable and you know generally nice about things. Although when I lose my shit, I will go. <laughs> But that bit was the bit that I enjoyed the most. And I now understand why. It's because it was allowing me to connect to a part of myself that I don't allow myself to go to. But as someone else, I could do it. Exactly. I would like to do a study that finds a massive amount of people that call them, that describe themselves as not somebody who gets angry very often and then find out how much back pain they've got. <laughs> oh, God, I've got fucking loads of back pain. I know. People who describe themselves as somebody who doesn't get angry very often are usually so fucking full of anger and expressing anger is such a... need to be pushed so far so that you've got some kind of excuse. Day-to-day anger is not allowed. It's, it's, it's pushed aside and then it goes into the body. So that brings us back to, like, you know, how do we move through it? We've talked about the rocking and, the, and that sort of stuff. And obviously there's trauma therapy. I mean, have you experienced much trauma therapy? Or? I've done all sorts of kinds of therapy. I'm rocking from side to side as I, as I speak. I wonder if that you can hear that on the on the mic. Most recently, I did somatic experiencing. Okay. Which I'd love to talk about a bit more in the next episode. Yeah. My early therapeutic self medications were mainly alcohol based. That was my trauma therapy. That was my numbing out. Yeah. Well, choice. me too. Massively. And um, a, li- a little smattering of self harm. <laughs> as a teenager <laughs> do you know I used to do that as well when I was younger did you yeah but I think I was definitely doing it as a cry for attention rather than in a properly serious way do you know what I mean like I, I was doing it in an obvious way because I wanted someone to notice that I was doing it see I often um pick up on things in your language and tease you about them in a in a loving way but when I'm just picking up on my yeah. own a smattering of self-harm and and picking up on you saying oh I I wasn't doing it seriously and I'm going back to what lovely Vincent said. It's the same road. How far along that road do you need to get? Yeah. In a, in a way. I, oh, I mean, it was a suicide attempt that was just a cry for help. Somebody took enough pills to get them hospitalised. That's more than a cry for help. I'm not saying that that's yeah. what happened with you. But self-harm of any kind. I say this. I'm going to out myself. I say this. I'm a skin picker. I've At the moment, and for the last three or four years, I've had a habit of picking, literally physically picking holes in myself, and I'm trying to stop it. And I know that doing my work is going to help, but it's it's a crutch at the moment. And it, it's hardly, I mean, it's hardly like having a cup of tea. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the best of crutches. Um I feel like we're we're careering towards the end of this episode. Yeah, I what think about so you? Too. Yeah, no, I mean it's it's really interesting, and I think what's 
exciting about the next episode is like looking how do we address this mm. and uh, finding some solutions for all this trapped trauma that's in our bloody systems yeah. and also really sort of acknowledging that thing of like you know I, I, I remember one time saying like in one of the previous episodes like I don't understand why I've got all this stuff going on because because in my memory I can't think of anything particularly bad happening you know I feel like I had a really pleasant upbringing my parents were very loving but it's something of like where does my trauma come from and then recognizing that it actually it can it can come from anywhere and it doesn't matter where it comes from it's like what do we do to address it and yeah and, and just even becoming aware of it and aware of how that impacts on your behavior and how you then react and respond to the world around you yes yes is is key yes because your this is what's really marked me about the attachment theory if your worldview for whatever reason says that the world isn't a safe place then you operate in the world as though it was full of danger and then you're going to have a completely different experience of life than somebody who operates as with the world as a safe place it's like telling yourself telling a child putting a child in a meadow full of beautiful flowers with a little brook and a picnic and saying this is what the world's like there's some things you can go on that swing it'll be exciting you might fall in the water but you'll be okay you can handle this this is what the world's like that's good attachment the opposite is leaving them in a war zone with bombs and things and broken glass everywhere and exploded concrete and saying, this is what the world's like. Get on with it. <laughs> and that on a subconscious level. So what? when we're talking about how do we get over it, we need to find ways, big old quote fingers, we need to find ways, and many very clever people have been finding ways for a long time, but we need to find ways that suit us to teach our unconscious and our body that rather than the world being a dangerous wasteland where bombs may drop at any time and where people that you come across will probably be out to kill you but you can't be sure, to teach you that the world is in fact fundamentally a beautiful meadow with a picnic and a rope swing into a river. And when your unconscious can operate that way, then when a lion comes in, you know what you're looking for. If a lion comes into danger zone, it's just another fucking danger. You can't you won't be wide enough to get out of its way. Mm. Oh, I'm going to say something which I think if you put, if, but if you put someone just in a meadow, does that mean they then have an unrealistic view of the world? Because it is does have some danger in it. Say two people with trauma in their lives. So I can't answer that, can I? I can't answer that because my worldview is still. So I've told you this in. So my my recurring dream as a child was of a field was of going into a field to rescue a baby dressed as a cow with Velcro with a suit at the back and being halfway through, I was going in there with my dad to rescue the baby. Honestly, thank you, Unconscious, for some incredible symbols. And halfway through, I'd noticed that, first of all, my dad had fucked off and I was alone in the field. Secondly, that the panthers that were guarding the gate had spotted that I wasn't a cow, but I was a person and they could see the Velcro and I had been found and spotted. So my field was not the safe picnic field no. that you want. My field was danger. Mm. I can't answer it, but I what attachment theory would say is if your understanding of the world that it that is that it's a safe place, then you're not wasting constant energy on looking for danger. Yeah, I and get if you're that. not wasting that energy on looking for danger, when danger comes, you see it. Maybe you don't see. I don't have the answer. to No, that. it's just an interesting question because it's a great it's like, question. Because I just think I think. Um, I'm I'm a bit on the rose-tinted side of looking at life, but unconsciously I'm frightened as fuck. But my 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 sort of 
my my understanding is that you know I, I don't recognize danger because I've got blind trust in the world almost so does that make sense Sammy yeah this is a documented phenomenon this is a documented wow, phenomenon tell me more, tell me more. if you have been numbed to what if you're always looking for danger yeah and your system is always looking for danger when real danger comes you can't discern it because your system you don't recognize yourself you ignore your own bodily signs the child in the field that's been used to gentle this is what this is what life feels like this is gentle animals recognize danger you're not gonna if you're a child in the field that's never had anything but pleasant things and and an animal comes up to you bearing its teeth your animal brain will recognise that as danger. Yeah. If your animal brain is always looking for danger in benign things that you can't do anything about, you're about to tell somebody that you don't like the way they make your tea because it's not to your taste. I get worried about that. I'll probably drink a cup of tea that I don't like rather than say, actually, I don't like it like that. Oh, I can relate to that. Yeah. So your brain is looking for... This This is your brain looking for... Why would you worry about a thing like that? It's all right from the outside. I, I worry about it. But why would anybody worry about a thing like that? But then you put you, you might put yourself in a situation where there is real danger and you, you'd ignore that feeling in your belly because you'd get it, but you'd ignore it. You'd kind of feel slight discomfort, but you'd ignore oh, God, it. Oh, God, I've done that to myself loads of times. But this doing that to yourself is your brain has been shaped differently from your experiences early in life whether you remember them or not and whether they feel like they were traumatic or not when you and I talk off this podcast and sometimes on it and I tell you stories from my past I watch your face change and I watch you say I can't believe that I can't that I mean that's just and to me it doesn't feel like that because it's my norm yeah and and because I didn't know for a lot of the things that were happening to me that there was anything unusual I didn't know when I was isolated as the less good of people that it wasn't because I was the less good of people of course I didn't understand that it was because arbitrarily I had been chosen as the less good of people how can a person be less good you know it doesn't make any how can a kid be shit <laughs> yeah kids aren't shit kids are just kids yeah anyway does that yeah 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 go it, anywhere does, near no, it, does, it does make sense and I think it goes back to that thing of like what's happening on the surface is not always what's happening underneath and we know that because 95% of our behaviour is in our subconscious and we don't even recognise or are aware that we're doing it. Yeah. Or have that stuff going on. I think for me, I mean, something I'd like to talk about in the next episode where we talk about addressing trauma is exactly that. You know, like your trauma is not something that you can actually address in your cognitive mind because it's, en- it's energy and it's and it's trapped energy, essentially, and it's in your subconscious. So, you, I mean, something about going into theta brainwave, I don't know if that's anything that you've come across theta. Oh, you have to tell me all about it. Okay, well, we'll do that in the next episode. Right then. Right then. It's been a, it's been a ride. It certainly has, and we've got more rides to come. Yeah. So we'll see you in the next episode. Thank you so much for listening today. I hope you've um, enjoyed it and found some stuff out that you might not have known before. Or maybe you have heard it before and it's just re-remembering it. Actually, we we do know this stuff deep down, don't yeah. we? Yeah. It's just remembering it. And in the resources, of course, we'll put all the links to the books that we've been talking about. If you've enjoyed this podcast and it's, you know, it's helpful for you or you enjoy it in any way, please either share it or give us a, a review on whatever platform you've listened, listened to it. Because the reason we're doing it is because we want to 
But if it can help anybody else, we would be absolutely delighted to grow the audience. Absolutely. And also we're on Facebook, we're on Instagram. Um, our Facebook is Past Imperfect Podcast. On Instagram, it's at Past Imperfect Podcast. So have a look for us, find us and, um, you know, join in the conversation with us. We really want to hear what you've got to say and, and hear your stories. So yeah. please get in touch with us. And thank you very much. Thank you very much. We'll see you next time. Bye. Over the hill I see the fire burning As in my dream now real as we are turning So what of love the moon and stars are asking While as the fire burns bright the night is passing Wind 